Well, good morning, everyone. Grab a seat. Can you hear me okay? Welcome to Vintage. Welcome online for those joining us around the world, um, Boston area or England or elsewhere. Maybe you're in LA in bed with some cocoa. Good to see you. Welcome in our courtyard. I hope you're not too cold out there. But welcome. How are you? It's good to see you. My name is Gare. I'm one of the pastors here. Real delight to welcome you this morning. And uh, we are going to give to the Lord this morning. I don't know about you, but um, I was raised in a church which kind of wasn't health healthy when it came to generosity. So I'm on a journey to become more like Christ, to become a generous giver and to invest in other people, not be a cul-de-sac of God's blessing, but a channel of God's blessing. And we're going through a season of saying this liturgy together. I'll be going to read it. You just listen to it. Because I find as I pray this prayer, as I read this liturgy, it kind of is shaping me on my journey toward generosity. So as I read this out, may also you also just hear it, let these words sink in. And wherever you are on your journey, I think God is calling us into a deeper joy of being a generous people. So hear these words in your heart as I read them. Holy Father, there is nothing I have Sorry, there's nothing I have that you have not given to me. All I have and am belong to you. Bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord. Who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds. Who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. And we all say, Amen. Amen. Father, as we come to give this morning, give to the mission of your son through your church. We pray that you would teach us, mature us into the joy of being a generous people with our time, our talent, and our treasure. You give that we may sow and invest in others. And so as we give, we pray, let your kingdom come, your will be done. Father, whether we've given online or whether we give now, Lord, we thank you that we get to invest in what you're doing in our city. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The baskets are coming around. Um, and I want to kind of showcase a couple of things before I we get, we dig into God's word this morning. On your seat, you have one of these. It's an invitation for you or for you to give away. It's to the Alpha launch night. Alpha's starting soon. It's my 43rd Alpha. I'd love you to join me. Alpha is a series of evenings where people can explore faith and safety without judgment, where you can ask big questions without feeling, am I allowed to ask that question? Where you can go on a journey with others to see what you believe. We're all on a spiritual journey, and we want to create a space called Alpha for people who would not call themselves Christians. Or maybe they are Christians, but kind of, I'm not too sure anymore. Alpha is the safe space where you can come with a lot of other people and go on a journey together to go on a journey with your faith. Now, 
Alpha runs for eight weeks, but often people go, well, I don't know if I want to go it. I kind of want a taste of it before I sign up. So that's why we do the Alpha launch night. The Alpha launch night is the very first night of an eight-week series, but you can just come to the launch night, bring a friend, and see if Alpha is for you. It's a fun night. We have a DJ, we've got the Alpha Pub open. There's, I think last time we had 500 people come. There's no commitment. It really is. You can come and see if it's for you. Or many of us are going, well, it's not for me, but you have a friend who it would be for. To bring along a friend who's exploring, who may be going through a tough time and asking the big questions of life. Or maybe they just want a good night out. And we have the Alpha Launch Night. We want to encourage you to bring someone if it's not for you. Now, there's another card on your seat, which is, I found really helpful for me to prompt me to ask me the question, who can I bring? This little card is a little prayer card, and you can write three names in it and go, who do I know who I might bring to Alpha? And you can pray for God to open up an opportunity to invite them, to bring them. How many of you know someone else in Los Angeles? <laughs> Amazing. All right, so you can all be involved in this. You can all go, I could bring someone. I could invite them. It's such low-hanging fruit to invite them to the launch night. And even if they say, well, what is Alpha for? And you go, I kind of don't know, but this is just a launch night. Just come along, find out if it's for you. It's just a good party, right? It's so simple. Now, many of you are going, ooh, is it a good experience? What's it like? Do I kind of trust my relational chips by bringing my friend along to this? So the question I have for you is, who can you bring to the Alpha Launch tonight? It's a little challenge for you. Bring one. Pray for three, bring one. Pray for three, bring one. You never know. You may be that link in the chain of helping someone on their journey towards Christ. Now, if you're thinking, but what if I bring someone, I'm a Christian, I can't do Alpha, right? I normally, I remember when I worked in London, I'd bring as many people as I could to the first week of Alpha. And then I think, oh no, but what if I, what, what if, they want me to do Alpha with them. Am I allowed? Well, you are allowed. Normally, we don't let Christians who um, don't have questions, you're not allowed to do Alpha, because we want to make space for other people. But you are allowed if you bring a friend, right? So leave it up to your friend. Many of my friends said to me, actually, I don't want you to be in my Alpha group, which is like, fair enough. <laughs> Many of my friends did say, don't leave me alone. So see how it goes. But bring someone to the Alpha launch night and see what God might do. All right, let me pray and then we'll get, dig into God's word. Father, we thank you that we all have friends who are going through things and you put them in our lives that we may love them well and just, and maybe invite them to come to the Alpha Launch Night that they can just see for themselves and go on a journey in safety and in love with their faith. Just drop names in our minds now of who we can invite and who we can bring. In Jesus' name. Oh, and as we come to your word, speak to us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, I'm not a really good prayer, as you can tell. <laughs> Romans 8, 28. It's a classic verse. It says this, And we know that in all things, say all things. Yes. In all things, God works for the good, say good, yes. of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is one of those verses that you hear a lot and is there to comfort us that no matter what you go through, that God can turn it for good in your life. It's one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament. It's probably on the back of some coffee cup in your, in your drawers. 
is there, and it's probably all over Instagram, is there to be one of those principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that no matter what you go through, Jesus is bigger, stronger, and he can bring good out of it. And at the same time, when I'm going through something horrible and horrendous, I hate it when people quote it to me. <laughs> Have you ever been in that situation when I'm going through something and it's hard and it's difficult and it's, it's just like overwhelming and I've been through some things in my life like you have and I, I tell you, if someone came to me and just said, hey, yeah, but you know, in all things God works, they wouldn't get to the end of the verse before I hit them. <laughs> it's just like, oh, sharp, right? It feels hollow, feels simplistic. You know, it feels like, no, see, the all things don't include my things. The my thing is too big to fit into that verse. You know, like you, we have the, the things that we separate out from that verse and go, but yeah, I know God's got great things for me. I know, I know I'm in the center of his plans, but, but, if only that hadn't happened, then I would believe that verse. If only I wasn't born into that brokenness, then that wouldn't have if, if only I hadn't been hurt by that person. If only I hadn't done that thing. We all have the if onlys in our life that feel that we're still imprisoned and chained by and don't really qualify for the all things of Romans 8. We feel that these things are determinative of our future, not God. You see, the New Testament can be full of these amazing gospel principles, and Paul is the expert of writing them in his letters. And at times we read them, or certainly I do, if I'm really honest with you, I go, Ooh, I know it sounds great, but I just, that seems unrealistic. Is it just me? Feels, you know what, it's a bit hollow. I love the principles, Paul, but get real. Well, if you've ever felt like that, as I have, this is one of the great gifts. This is one of the great things that God has given to us is because if you feel like this, he's given you something to help through that realism to see this principle come down into real life and it's called the Old Testament. The Old Testament. You see, we're on a journey here at Vintage to fall in love again with the Old Testament and one of the ways that the Old Testament speaks to us is by giving substance real stories of how God works with people that are real life demonstrations of New Testament gospel principles. See, the old and the new are not two separate stories. They're one story unified pointing to Jesus and the gospel is felt and found throughout the whole of the old and the new. And when we look at Romans 8, 28, we go, all things? Seems unrealistic. All things. What someone did to me, really? That can be turned to good. What I did to someone else, really? That could be turned to I don't believe it. And in which case we have God saying, well, let me take you to a story which proves that no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, when you surrender those things to the hand of a sovereign God, 
he can turn your all things into something beautiful. Let's turn in our Bibles to look at a man called Moses in Exodus chapter 3. It's on page 62. Your Bible is under your seat. We've, uh, if you don't have a Bible, please do take it home. It's our gift to you. Um, many people go, oh, this is a better Bible than I've got and I've taken it home, which is uh, great. Just an expensive, great, that's good. All right, here we go. We're gonna read of a man called Moses as we go through our sermon series on Exodus together. Now, Moses, first one. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'm going to go over to that bush and see, it's very strange. Why does this bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. Romans 8.28 says, In all things God works for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And we see here a man called Moses who's being called to do one of the greatest things in the kingdom of God is to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promises of God. And yet as we dig deeper, we see Moses, before his call, had a lot of all things. He had a lot of all things. A lot of all things that he would have gone, I'm done. God can't use me. I'm now an afterthought. The things of my upbringing have ruined my future. See, what were the all things in Moses' upbringing? You see, what we see is God uses Moses' traumatic upbringing for his good purposes. 
bit of context here in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. We see, we get an insight into the pretty dysfunctional upbringing in the life of Moses. I mean, first of all, he's born into a family who had some strange relational dynamics. Not many people know this, but um, he was born and... Moses' father had married his aunt, so at the same time, Moses' mum was his great aunt. Some interesting family dynamics there. But he was born into a culture where his people were enslaved. It's a very traumatic time. Born into slavery. You see, the people of God, the Israelites, had relocated from around the Israel area down to Egypt in time of famine, and they'd taken shelter and found a safe haven in Egypt. But they stayed there because they thrived and they loved it and they were growing. But they were growing so much that it was a bit too good for Pharaoh. And so he got concerned about national security. He got concerned about a minority immigrant community starting to become the majority. So he started to put in restrictions on these on this group of people, beginning with slavery. He enslaved them, barbarically slaves enslaved them. He then went further and said, I need to do some population control, that these people don't overwhelm us. And so he put an order in to kill every firstborn boy. This was meant to kill Moses, and yet he was born into this oppressive regime. But his mum had some little cunning plan to save Moses, and so she put him in a basket at three months when she could no longer hide him and sent him down the river in a basket. Bye, mum. Sent down the river. Rescued by one of Pharaoh's probably hundreds of daughters. Brought into Pharaoh's house. She then got his real mum, or his great aunt, I don't know what he called her, but anyway, a real mum, to be his wet nurse and to nurse him. And then at seven, he had to say goodbye permanently to his mum and be ripped away from his biological mum to be adopted into Pharaoh's house. And so for seven years, had that kind of culture. Now he's ripped away from his real mum and now adopted into Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's house. Now imagine this, you are now adopted into the house of the oppressors of your family. The people who actually tried to kill you are now adopting you into their family and your grandfather is the evil dictator Pharaoh who wants to get rid of your people. I mean, that's some family trauma right there. I mean, imagine going to your psychiatrist and sitting down and going, now tell me your family of origin. It's like, well, get ready. I mean, some identity trauma. Am I... Am I Am I an Israelite? Am I an Egyptian? I'm kind of torn apart between these two great enemies. Who am I? I can't imagine the wounding he had, the sense of challenges, identity, emotional, relational baggage he's carrying in his life. How on earth could God use that for good? We have all of our own stories, right, of maybe growing up in a fatherless home, maybe growing up in abusive homes, maybe growing up in being dislocated, maybe growing up, you have your own story and you can go like Moses, how on earth could that be a thing God uses for good? But what we see is the very trauma he went through 
was used by God for the good of his people and the good of his purposes. Now it's important to say God is not a moral monster in bringing this evil into his life. God is not behind the evil in this world. You see this in the person of Jesus, that Jesus, whenever he finds evil, opposes it and delivers it and comes against it. God doesn't bring evil, nor does he collude with evil. He has come in Jesus to defeat evil, and in the meantime, he will overrule its purposes to bring out good in his kingdom. And we see this with Moses. See, Moses was able to be the leader of his people because for seven years, his precious mother was feeding him stories about who he is and who his God was. For seven years, she's telling him, don't forget who you are. Let me tell you about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God who has revealed himself to us. Don't forget For seven years, he had the benefit of growing up in that culture that later on, the people could look at Moses and go, you are one of us, we trust you to lead us out of slavery. But it was also because he was raised in Pharaoh's home that he was able to become a leader. That he was able to be educated, something not available to the Israelites. That he was able to be be, uh, trained in military strategy and leadership he wasn't able to access if he was enslaved with the people of God. You see, the trauma of being ripped away from his mother was evil. But God never lets evil have the last word in our lives. He says, I'm going to use it. What the enemy meant for evil, I will turn into good. Moses was able to come alongside the people of God. He was able to address Pharaoh. He was able to lead the people out through strategic leadership. All of that because he had gone through this experience, which God said, I know this is hard. I know this is evil, but I will use it. I will turn it for good. I know this in my own life, and maybe you do in your own. I won't go into all the details, but I remember growing up in a church culture which I look back and go, I can honor bits, but lots of it was toxic. I was just with my sister this week in the UK for some family stuff there, and we went out to the pub, went to my favorite pub, we sat down with my favorite pint of beer, and we just lamented over the thing. Did you, can, do you, can you remember we grew up in that? Now, they aren't just stories that are for funsies, because actually, they were very traumatic. And there was a time in my mid-20s when I kind of escaped through some strange circumstances, but I was completely broken, completely alone, completely doubting my faith, completely questioning who I was. I remember walking around London, it's like, I think, I, I think my life has to start again. I don't know who my friends are, I kind of am in the wrong profession, I kind of don't believe in Jesus anymore, I wasn't allowed to ask the big questions, I hate pastors, I hate church, and I built everything and it's all gone. My life is over. If only, 
If only that hadn't happened. And maybe you have your if onlys. If only I got married, then things would be different. If only I stayed single, then things would be different. <laughs> if only I had kids. If only now, let's say my daughter's down here. I love you, Naomi. That's amazing. <laughs> if only I'd got that breakthrough. If only that hadn't happened to me when I was a child. And I'm not making light of anything. But in my own life, it's through the if onlys that God inserts his purposes. And what was meant for evil will be turned to good. And I, I remember looking at this church and thinking of my background and the difficulties of that. I remember when we planted Vintage in 2011, and there's only a few of us, including Ted down here, at this little movie theater in Westwood. I remember someone coming with a prophetic word for me. They didn't know me at all. And if you don't know what a prophetic word is, it's simply what they felt is kind of a message from God, which they humbly give you to test if it's true or not. And she said, I just felt, I had this picture, I felt it's for you, and there's this oak table, dining table. And she didn't know this, but oak has a hugely significant meaning in my family background. And it had a glass top because underneath the glass top was carvings on the oak tabletop. And the carvings were kind of like this huge river tributary system. All of these kind of squiggly lines everywhere. And, and it kind of feels like you've often thought, oh Lord, if I only hadn't had these squiggly lines in my life. That, what was that for? And it feels chaos and it feels like just, it feels out of control and you've looked at your life and you've gone, why is that? Why this? And it just doesn't feel unified in any direction. It just feels all over the place. And yet, if you go along that picture on top of the table, all these little tributaries start to meet and they get bigger and they all start to, and then they run into this roaring river going in one direction. But though you couldn't see the purpose Though you thought things were just dysfunctional, God is going to use it to feed into why you're here in LA and in the midst of only 10 people in a small movie theater in West, Westwood. God is going to use all of those things. And if you know me, you know that I bleed for those who have been hurt by church and want to save space for them to rediscover Jesus even though they've been hurt. Because that's what God has redeemed in my life. If you know me, I, I just want to carve out a space where people can explore without judgment and safety and fear and ask the questions that maybe they were ashamed into asking because that's my journey. Where pastors aren't celebrities and we're great so follow us, but pastors are simply, I'm with you guys, I'm fumbling along and maybe we look at Jesus together. Because that's where I've come from. And somehow in my life, the traumas, the tragedies, the brokenness, God has said, I'm going to use it for good. And he'll use it for your good. No matter the all things in your life, when we surrender them to him, they start flowing into his purposes. Now for Moses, it wasn't just the things that had been done to him, because many of us here are going, that's fine, Gare, 
But my all thing is the massive mistake I did. That I was the one who was wrong. I kind of sabotaged my own life. Surely that's not in the all things that God redeems. But let's look at Moses. You see, at the end of chapter two, Moses is all grown up. He's grown up in Pharaoh's house. And you can tell through the story that he's now wrestling with identity of go, and he starts to identify with the people of God because of his upbringing with his mum. He senses, these are my people and they're being oppressed. I've got to do something about it. So he waits for his day to kind of step in and be the leader and bring justice to the people of Israel. And that day happens, and we read in Exodus 2 that he sees this Israelite beating up, sorry, being beaten up by an Egyptian. So Moses goes, this is my chance to show my loyalty. And he goes in and he kills the Egyptian. In other words, Moses acts maybe out of sincere motives, but with hatred in his heart. He doesn't come alongside and be God in that moment. He actually comes and he is Pharaoh in that moment. Naked power, not liberator, but vigilante. He comes and intervenes and just slaughters this Egyptian, not knowing really what is going on, but this pride of, I've got this, this rashness and this quick-tempered, I'm going to fix this in my own strength, suddenly doesn't reap what he thought it would reap, but reaps rejection by his own people. See, the next day, he sees two Israelites arguing, so he goes over there to break it up, and they say, hang on a minute, are you going to kill one of us like you killed the Egyptian? In other words, dude, we're not looking for a leader like you. You don't represent our God. That's not our God's way. Rejected by his people. And then Pharaoh hears what he's done and tries to kill Moses. Rejected by Pharaoh. His only option through his own rash mistake is to flee. And he flees out into the wilderness. And there's a verse in Acts chapter 2 which is deeply, deeply, emotionally laden. It says, Moses fled and sat down by a well. I mean, imagine sitting down going, what next? I'm rejected. Rightly so. I've messed up my life. I'm alone. I've got nowhere to go. I've got no friends got no career, I've got no prospects. I'm a refugee in a land I don't know anyone because of my own stupid mistakes. If only. I don't know about you, but I carry some of those if onlys. Do you ever carry an if only? If only I hadn't done that, things would be different. Or was it just me? But the all things cover not only things done to you, but things you've done, even hurtful things you've done to others. You see, fast forward 40 years, and what we read in our chapter three is fast forward 40 years, Moses has become a shepherd in a land he didn't grow up in, and suddenly God calls to him from a burning bush and says, I am choosing 
you. I am choosing. Something happened in the wilderness that God said, I didn't choose the rash vigilante, but I'm now choosing you. You see, Moses went into the wilderness because of his own mistakes, but God met him there and transformed him there, redeemed him there. And it says, what I love, Moses goes, who am I? In other words, I'm no longer that prideful guy. I'm no longer the guy who goes, I've got this. I'm no longer the guy who just will rashly intervene because I think I'm all powerful. In fact, now I know, as Numbers says of Moses, he says in Numbers, Moses is the most humble of all the people of God. You see, God didn't drive him into the wilderness, but he used the wilderness to break him down and build him up that he could now be the leader of his people. Why? Because his pride was gone. His self-sufficiency was gone. So much that Moses go, I don't know, what, how am I gonna do this? And God says, I will be with you. You might not have an army? No, I'll be with you. You know, all I've got is a stick. Yeah, take that, that might work. <laughs> In fact, I got a stutter, doesn't matter. Stutter your way to Pharaoh. Moses had learned enough by being in the wilderness to say, not my will, but your will be done. In all things, in all things, God works for good. Not just what people have done to you, but even what you've done to others. Where other people have ruled you out, God never rules you out. But he will use it for good. Two important things to end that we see in Romans 8. That again we see in the life of Moses. Because it says in Romans 8 that all things work for good, but it doesn't stop there. Paul is just not saying in Romans 8, hey, Anything bad happens to you, it'll be fine. Because evil, which there is, is seeking to destroy your life. Things you've done may destroy your life, and that may be the end of the story, but Paul says they won't have the end of the story if you surrender them to God. For all of those who've surrendered, who've called according to his purposes. See, Moses went to the bush and he hid his face and surrendered to God. Who am I? Take all that I am and maybe you can make something beautiful out of it. See, this is not some theology of everything has a reason. No, it doesn't. The bad things in your life, the evil things in your life, the things that are bad, God says, are bad. It's also not going everything, you know, it's not, it's not a silver lining theology that everything good has also a bit of, everything that's bad has a bit of good. No, there are evil things in the world that are there too. But Jesus says, steal, kill, and destroy. But God is so bigger, he says, if you surrender them to me, I will bring something good out of them. They will not have the final word in your life. But also this verse says something really important. It says, in all things, God works for the Good. 
And what is good in that verse? What is good in Moses' life? Is it, oh great, God's going to give me back my dreams and take me back to Egypt and I'm going to become a really popular leader and I'm going to have a beach house on the Red Sea and go scuba diving. This is going to be amazing. God's going to redeem those circumstances to give me better circumstances of leisure, pleasure, treasure. Is that the good in this verse? No. It's a better good. It's a better good. It says the good which is according to his purposes. See, there's a good that he's going to weave in your life that is far better than what people say is project self. But it's project Jesus. That Moses, if someone said to you at the end of the day, oh, Moses, it's a bit weird how God worked out all of this stuff, right? Because, man, did you ever think, man, it would have been great just to um, have a nice beach house, could go back and just have a nice secure home and sensible family and all the rest of it and just have a good 401k. That would have been great, right? He goes, are you kidding me? God used me to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. I saw the Red Sea part. I saw manna from heaven. I saw our oppressors be defeated. I rose up a mountain and met face to face with God. You can keep your beach house because I'm in it for bigger things. You see, we will never get into seeing the goodness of God in our lives if we limit God to the temporary shallow things of this world. He's inviting us up that for eternity you'll sit with Moses and go, yeah, dude, I made mistakes too. Yeah, dude, I had, my mother wasn't my great aunt, but it was kind of dysfunctional. <laughs> but look what God did. He took all of that and turned it upside down, sent me into the darkness to bring the light of Jesus Christ. What the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. Do you surrender to God and go, God, take me anywhere. Use this, I don't care how. But I'm gone beyond the leisure, pleasure, treasure now. Kind of ruined, my, I don't know what, use me. Use me, send me, take me. Let my life tell your story. And for eternity, walk through the crowds of the saints, high-fiving, look what God did in your life. It's because we're broken, he uses us. And as we come to communion, this is why communion is so pivotal to our life together, because it's because of his brokenness that we live today. You see, Jesus went to his point of weakness on the cross, he even said to his father the night before, is this really it? Do I really have to be broken? But it was the place of brokenness on the cross that God worked his greatest victory. And so as we take our communion this morning, this is an opportunity for you to say, okay, God, I'm going to give you my brokenness. And I'm going to trust that you can do something with it. That this is not going to sabotage my life. This is not going to restrict what you have for me. But like Moses... I'm going to surrender to you and use me 
in your great purposes. Let's stand together. Thank you.